You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. I love being here with you guys. It's a great joy. Even on little sleep, it's really energizing to be here. Um, but second to you, of course, my favorite hour of the week, I think, is Monday mornings from 1030 to 1130. Because on Monday mornings from 1030 to 1130, I teach the fifth grade leadership class at my son's school. So it's these 12 boys, and we talk about leadership. And it's everything from like hygiene, like, hey, y'all are starting to smell, to like spiritual disciplines, like, hey, let's worship God together, right? So it's the whole gamut of just what it means to be growing up as a little boy into a man. And... Um, I'm always struck when I read children's literature and things that are out for children, it's so much of it is moralistic, right? It's just like, here's what it means to be a good little boy or a good little girl. Now, do that, right? And, and so some of the material that I'm going through with them, it kind of has that flavor to it. And so here's how I start most classes. A couple weeks ago, we were talking about complaining. And so I got up and I said, okay, we're going to talk about complaining today. I would like for you guys to define complaining. And so they would throw out a bunch of things, and then you always find the smart kid. And so I picked this one kid. I said, Jude, I need you to take everything they just said and then, and then like, come up with a class definition. And he produces something that, like, Miriam would be proud of, Miriam Webster. So, and, uh, so they got it. They, they know what it means. They can define it. And I said, let's talk about this a little bit. When do you complain? And they give me all the examples. And then I, I always like asking questions about their home life. I'm like, what do your parents do when you complain? Like, what's the punishment? You know, I'm getting ideas, <laughs> bribery information, all kinds of things. And so they have fun. We talk about this. So they get it. They can define it. They, they can describe when they do it. You know? they, can, they can talk about the harm that it does, and they can talk about the consequences that come from complaining. And so we go through all of that. And at the end of that, I say, okay, listen, stop it. And they just look at me. I was like, all right, we done? Everybody good? And they're just like, mm, what do you, um, I mean, you know, they're 11. I was like, you know what it is? You know that your parents don't like it. I don't like it. God doesn't like it. I mean, we looked at it. So stop it. And I'm just like, um, okay. I was like, all right, so is everybody good with that? Like, you're not going to complain now anymore? And they'll say, well, no. I mean, I'm going to complain. I'm like, why would you do that? And we go through the whole thing again. And I just keep going over and over until some little kid finally says, Mr. Walker, I can't stop it. I can't. I, even, even though I know these things, I'm still going to do it. And so then we begin to work out what my seminary professor and many have called the indicatives and the imperatives of the gospel. So there are all kinds of imperatives in the Bible, like commands, all kinds of things like don't complain, right? And then matched with those, there are indicatives. There are things that are, have already been done, things that are about who we are. So an imperative is about what to do, an indicative is about who you are. And so a good example would be this. Paul says, forgive each other as... God has forgiven you in Christ. Right, so, so the way, the resources that you have to forgive are the, what has already been done to you, that God has forgiven you in Christ. Be at peace with one another because you've been united together in Christ. All right, it goes on and on like that. And so I make the kids figure out, okay, wh- what, what are we talking about? And what's, what's God already done toward you in Christ that would give you even the desire and the ability to actually obey that command? And it's so hard for them. And I always assure them, look, if you can get this, you'll know more than half my church. And they get really motivated by that, and they like, they like the idea of being smarter than you. But that's the gospel. The gospel is that what the law of God demands, Christ did. 
for you in your place. He satisfies the righteous law of God in his life. And in his death, he satisfies God's wrath against you for not doing it. You couldn't do it. You didn't do it. But then he raises from the dead and he gives us his spirit so that we actually have the power, the desire, and the ability to to obey the command. That's the gospel. The gospel saves us and then it sanctifies us. Cleans the slate in your life and then cleanses your heart. You've got to get that. And the reason I bring all that up is because today we're going to start a study in the book of James, which you've heard read. If you would just read James, you know, just a, just a plain reading, you would probably feel like my fifth graders do at the beginning of class. Because in James, you have like 50 plus imperative commands. He, he likes shouting out the orders, all right? It is the law of God coming right at you. It's, it's confrontational. It is personal. It's challenging. It's convicting. And on top of that, he only mentions Jesus like twice, And I don't think he mentions the Holy Spirit at all. There's one place that's debatable. So where's the indicative in that? I got 55 commands and I got two mentions of Jesus, neither of which have anything to do with the commands. So when you read James, you start to think, wait, is James just saying, hey, you're a Christian, stop it? And if so, how does that reconcile with all of the rest of Scripture that I've read? How does that reconcile with Paul, for example? And so a lot of people have had trouble with the book of James. And what I want to suggest to you is that uh, James isn't ignoring the gospel. James assumes the theology of the gospel, the indicative stuff, and he's focused on the, the, how it's worked out. He's focused on the imperatives, not to the neglect of the indicative. He assumes it. He's saying, look, I'm, I'm taking for granted that you have this, that you understand them. He's talking to Christians. And he's saying, now, let's see how it works out. It's like case law. You know, so uh, case law is simply to take the principles of something and see how it gets worked out in specific situations. That's what James is doing. He's, he is not trying to define the gospel, right? Go to Romans if you want that. James is trying to see how the gospel works out in everyday life. All right, so reading James uh, is not like, you know, like James wouldn't call you up and be like, hey, let's go to Starbucks and get a latte. Let me just hear about what you know talk to me about what you know. He would never do that. James wants to drop in at your office. He wants to show up at your house unexpected. He wants to go hang out with you and your friends on a Friday night. And there he wants to have a penetrating look at your life to to test, to see if the thing that you talk about really lives out in these situations. James is, he's about your actual life. And what he's trying to say is, is that genuine faith shows up in those areas. So he just goes through all kinds of subjects. As you read James, it's a little bit like reading Proverbs sometimes. Uh, It just seems like it goes from subject to subject. So all we're going to do today is just kind of get our feet wet with James a little bit. Uh, What James is about as a book will sort of unfold as we go through the spring. Uh, But today we'll just jump into the first subject, and it's the subject of trials. Suffering, difficulty, hardship, just troubles. That's what James wants to talk about. And his question for us is, uh, what does genuine faith look like in trials, in hardship? Because we live in a fallen world, we all face trials. Like you, you can't escape it. Nobody escapes it. And on top of that, we live in a very privileged, uh, comfortable part of that fallen world. So we have as kind of our main goal in life, comfort and ease. 
It's just, it's just kind of the culture we swim in. And so when trials come, we get really preoccupied with them. Like when you're sick or when there's tension in a relationship or, or something like that, you ever notice how it just like it's always back here? It clouds everything that you see. And so our tendency with trials is to get really hyper-focused on the trials themselves. It's like being in a great storm at sea and all you can see is the waves crashing in. And what we need is some fixed point, like a lighthouse. We need to look at something that would give us some sense of clarity and hope in the midst of that storm. And so genuine faith looks to Christ. It sees Christ as that lighthouse. And genuine faith as such produces joy and steadfastness in the midst of the storm of trials. All right? So the one who is focused on trials is overwhelmed by them. But the one who is focused on Christ is sanctified by his trials. Genuine faith produces joy and steadfast in trial. So our question is, how do we need to grow in our faith then as it relates to trials? And there's just two simple answers in this text. One is, we need perspective about trials. And the second is, we need wisdom. So perspective is, we need to think about trials in a particular way. And wisdom is, then we need to apply that understanding of trials to the specific situations of our life. Perspective and wisdom. Let's start with perspective. Uh, Usually, when we talk about perspective and trials, we mean things like, well, I mean, you know, it could be worse. Which always helps, right? When somebody tells you that, when you're going through something, it could be worse. There's people in like third world countries that would love to have your problems, as if that's supposed to make your problems feel better. Uh, We say things like, look, it'll pass. Now, there's a, there's a certain kind of perspective in those sentiments, but those pers- they're not distinctly Christian things to think. Like, that's how most of the world deals with trials. And James is pointing us to something that is much more profound than that. Uh, look at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So James is saying genuine faith is not marked by a kind of it'll pass, people in Africa have it worse than you. It's marked by joy in those trials, in those various kinds. All right, let's define some terms here because I think it's helpful in terms of understanding. Uh, trials is just a, a broad word that means sort of just troubles, difficulties, adversity. Uh, sometimes it's translated tempted. Later in chapter 1, which we'll get to next week, uh, that word will be tempted. So All temptation, all adversity is a form of of testing. But here, what he's talking about is a testing of your faith by adversity. And it's not just this really severe stuff. It includes that. But more broadly, it's just life. It's just like the fact that stuff doesn't work like it should. It's just the fact that, like, the finances never meet like I want them to. You know, my plans never go as I want them to. It's it's just that kind of stuff. It's the nickel and dime stuff of life that comes at you. And, And the bigger stuff. But it's all of that. And notice he says, when they come, not if they come. Uh, Some would teach that Jesus suffered so that we wouldn't have to. But you you know, you know intuitively, but we know biblically, historically, just in your own experience, that's not true. We all have trials of various kinds. It's not if, it's it's when. Jesus' suffering doesn't preclude us from, from, from suffering. It gives profound meaning and purpose to our suffering. All right, so there'll be trials, and, and he says, when you face them, count it 
all joy. And this word count means like to have first in priority. It's your leading thought. Right? So when you encounter trials, you have all kinds of feelings and reactions. And he's saying at the front of that, your leading thought, your primary thought is to count the trials joy. All right, now this word joy, it means joy. All right? You were hoping somehow it would mean injustice in the Greek, but it doesn't. Count it joy. That, so when you have these things, have this mindset about you that it's joy. Now, he's not saying, here's what, here's what you should do. You should just think happy thoughts until your trials go away. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying you should just grin and bear it. That's not genuine faith. Uh, genuine faith is able to hold these things in tension. Genuine faith is able to look at the trial and just call it what it is. It's hard. It's painful. It's difficult. Right? But it doesn't stop there. Genuine faith calls the trial what it is, but then it also is able to look past the immediacy of that trial and see something in the long run that would give it profound meaning and purpose. And what does it see? Well, look what he says. Uh, Count it all joy when you experience trials of various kinds because you know that testing of your faith produces steadfastness and steadfastness, when it has its full effect, makes you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So this word perfect just is a word for maturity. It means to grow up. It means to have a wholeness about your life that enables you to to handle life with integrity and virtue. And so what he's saying is, Faith, genuine faith, calls the trial what it is, but it looks past the immediacy of the difficulty and it says, this thing is going to make me mature. And so I count it joy. It's not that I like this thing. That's not Christian faith. This is hard. It's the fall. It's the result of sin. This is not good in and of itself. But it produces good in me. It it grows me up in the faith. All right, this is such a balanced approach to trials uh, because on one hand, you, know, you would have like masochism, which, which delights in the trial. It's like that's where you find joy. On the other hand, you would have hedonism, which is like you delight in the absence of, of trial. And so a hedonist would say, look, you, you can't have joy until your trials go away. But the gospel is neither of those. The gospel calls it what it is, but it doesn't delight in it. And the gospel embraces it as a means of transformation. The gospel produces joy and steadfastness. All right, genuine faith then, it just has a way of transforming our complaining into rejoicing. It's, it's, it's the evidence that you have genuine faith. You have joy in trials. Uh, so let's, let's put it this way. Um, when life comes at you, the mark of genuine faith is that you embrace it, not only as inevitable, but as useful to you personally. Now, why that's so hard for us is because, again, we live in this age of comfort and privilege, unparalleled in history, probably. And so on top of that, we also tend to look for our happiness in all kinds of things outside of God. So if you find happiness in comfort in any way, and a trial takes that away, then what happens to you? And you lose your footing in life, don't you? You lose your functional God. You start getting tossed around by the waves. The imagery here that James is using is that of like a, how gold is refined. You know, so you apply this intense heat to a, a metal, a precious metal, and it burns off the dross and it reveals the gold inside. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look, trials in life is this intense 
heat. Peter calls them fiery trials. He says, what that's doing is burning the immaturity off of you. And it's revealing the genuine character of faith in Christ and bringing you to maturity in it. And that's the issue. Genuine faith has a goal of maturity, not a goal of comfort. If your goal is comfort, trials will always be a setback. If your goal is maturity, trials are an opportunity. You want to grow up. All right, so let me ask you a question. Uh, what trials are you, are you facing right now? What hardships? And in what ways have you been looking to escape them rather than embrace them as, as a divinely appointed means for your growth and maturity in Christ? Listen to the gospel in Hebrews 12. Think about this language of, of considering it joy. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Uh, before that, he says uh, that, uh, let me find it here. Here we go. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was before him, so he's looking past the immediacy of this hostility toward him, and he's seeing the joy before him. For that joy, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. A few verses later, he, he now tells them, here's how you apply this gospel truth. He says, therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. See, if you get consumed with trials of your life, it puts you out of joint. It disorders your life. You get tossed around. But if you're focused on Christ, the fixed point of your faith, and you're able to endure trials with joy because of what he's doing in your life, there's healing in it. So we need perspective about trials and their purpose. Here's the second thing. We need wisdom. Uh, right perspective is just understanding what the role that trials have in our sanctification. Wisdom, then, is being able to apply that perspective to the specific situations of my life. Look at verse 5. He says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, so he's just implying, here's what you need to do this. You need wisdom. Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. All right, so wisdom is just the ability to handle life. That's just the plainest way I can put it, right? And so a foolish person, on the other hand, is, is overwhelmed by life, is naive about life, is cynical about life is completely focused in the momentary pleasure or gratification of life. He doesn't see long-term. That's how the Bible would describe a fool. A wise person, however, is just that person who's not overwhelmed, who's not naive, uh, who can handle life well because he understands the way life works, he understands what life is about, and he's able to apply those principles into the specific situations of his own life. We need wisdom. Right? We don't need a fix. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says in his uh, book, The Abolition of Man. This is great. For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem of human life was how to conform the soul to objective reality. And the solution 
was wisdom, self-discipline, and virtue. All right, so for the wise men of old, the, the aim, the goal in life was to say, okay, this is what objective reality is, and I need to conform my soul, the desires of my soul, to that reality. And, and the way that they did that was they pursued wisdom through, and self-discipline and virtue. All right. In contrast, C.S. Lewis says, the modern mind, for the modern mind, the cardinal problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of man. And the solution is a technique. Right. So the modern man is driven by the desires that he has, and he's trying to manipulate and control and subdue his reality to meet those desires. And the solution is not wisdom, it's just strategy. It's technique. The predominant view in our culture is that this world is all there is. And so the goal is to be happy now. Get happiness where you can, while you can. And so if that's the goal, trials are always a threat to that, always a setback to that. And so we're always asking the question, how can I change my circumstances to be happy? See, but wisdom and faith asks the question, how are my circumstances going to change me? Because my goal is not simply to be happy. I'll take it. I like happy. But my goal is to be sanctified, to be holy, to be conformed into the image of Christ. And if God so wants to put trials in my life to do that, I'll take it. I need to conform my soul to that reality. We need wisdom. How do we get it? Look at verse 5. It's actually not very complicated. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. That's it. Isn't that great? Oh, where's wisdom? Wisdom is with God. So where do you get it? Just ask God. Is it that easy? Yes. Look what he says. God gives generously to all without reproach. Ask God and it will be given to him. Our God is a giving God. It's his nature. He just does it simply and generously. He's not holding back wisdom. He's pouring it out, lavishing it on anyone who would ask. He says he doesn't, he doesn't give it with reproach, meaning when he gives wisdom, he doesn't have like a parting shot. See, sometimes you don't want to ask God for wisdom because you have in your mind all of these things that he would rightly be able to hold against you. Well, why would I give you wisdom? Look at all of this foolishness in your life. Right? That's precisely why he would give you the wisdom. Because you're foolish. And that's what James is saying. Like, look, don't be held back by that thought. He gives without reproach. He doesn't hold it against you. He wants you to be wise. He wants you to be conformed to the image of his son. But, verse 6, let him ask in faith, Right, with no doubting. So faith here is not faith in my faith. Faith here is faith in the goodness of God's character and his promises. It's trust in who he is. All right, so he says, don't doubt. This doesn't mean that we, don't, we have zero psychological uncertainty. I mean, I've never had zero psychological uncertainty about anything in my entire life. Okay? It doesn't mean that. And so don't get stuck here thinking that Getting wisdom from God depends solely upon the purity of my faith that I can muster up and have no doubt, no uncertainty. It doesn't mean that. This word faith is more complex than just like belief. It's, it's, it's commitment. It's fidelity to God. And so later you see he uses the word 
to describe doubt, he uses this phrase, double-minded. It just means that don't be divided in your loyalties. Be committed. Be, have fidelity to Christ. If you're divided in your loyalties, what would that look like? Uh, it, it would look like asking God for wisdom, but, but only if the answer is what you with, agree with is wisdom. All right, God, so I need wisdom to, to get through this trial. But if the answer is I have to endure this trial for a really long time, I don't want that wisdom. Do we have another wisdom? Any other wisdom? Right? Fidelity says, God, I want you above all else. And so I am committed to your ways, your wisdom, your plans for my life. And if that means endure this for a really long time, I'll do it. I won't always like it, right? but I like you. And so I'm in. Uh, This is what you see in Jesus in the garden. Uh, And Jesus gives you the example that that Christian faith is not happy all the time. He's sweating blood, uh, which is a condition that comes from extreme anxiety. All right? He knows what's going to happen. And he's asking God, God, would you take this cup from me? Is there another way to accomplish redemptive history? Can Can we do it apart from the cross? That's what he's saying. That's the wisdom that he wants from God. And then he says, but not what I want, what you want. Your will be done. And sure enough, God's will is that he go to the cross. He endures it for the joy set before him. If you're living for something besides God, like if the primary desire and and affection in your life is something besides God, if it's money or power or success or approval, or image, physical beauty. If you're living for those things, and then some trial comes into your life and and takes that away, you lose your footing. You lose your God. You start getting tossed around by circumstances. Like, are you up and down in your life? You know, like, is your joy, your sense of well-being tied to your circumstances? If you are, then there's a divided loyalty in your life. What you're saying is, yes, I love God, I want God, but also I need this. And James is saying, no genuine faith is steadfast in trials because it's got one focus, Christ. When we ask God for wisdom, but if we waffle because we we don't want to give over control of our life, it just reveals a lack of faith. And James is just saying, look, you need to ask God for wisdom to move toward him. In the gospel, uh, wisdom, suffering, and maturity are all bound together in Christ. In Colossians 1, Paul says that Jesus became for us the wisdom of God. Hebrews 2, it says that he was made perfect, same word, in his suffering. So then, here's two truths in the gospel. We're justified by the suffering of Jesus. He suffered in our place, made us right with God. And then we are sanctified by our own suffering. Right? There's no badge of honor. There's no like, I suffered, God, now save me. Now, God saves you because of Christ's suffering, but he sanctifies you in yours. And so wisdom is about living for God's agenda. Suffering, trials, not a setback to my agenda, just an orientation to God's agenda, which is to conforming the likeness of Christ. And so wisdom just wants to live life according to that agenda. 
All right, in verse 9 through 11, uh, we won't talk much about these. James is just going to give you an example of how this works out. You've got two guys here. You've got a poor person and a wealthy person. And James here is not making a point about wealth. That's going to come later, and it's going to come hard, all right? Just a little warning for you. Uh, Here, the point he's simply making is that nobody escapes testing. Poverty and wealth both bring their own kinds of testing to faith. And so nobody escapes it, and you need wisdom no matter what the kind of trial you encounter in your life is. So poverty tests our our faith in God. Will he provide? It also tests our, our forgiveness, Much of poverty is caused by oppression and injustice. And so, do I hold on to that or am I willing to forgive? And the perspective that genuine faith offers is that God is my Father. He knows what I need. He'll provide. And that I was an enemy of God and He forgave me. And so I can forgive. Wealth tests our ego. Look look what I've made of myself. And it tests our self-sufficiency. I can take care of myself. Genuine faith offers a unique perspective to say, my righteousness, the good things I've done, mean nothing before God. Nothing before God. Whatever good I've done, whatever that's genuinely good, is I've done because of God's grace and gifts that he's given me in my life. Uh, to self-sufficiency, the gospel just said, look, man, you're a created thing. You didn't make yourself. You were formed from dust into dust You'll return, and your only hope of life is that God save you, that God holds your life together. And so the humble man, the one who in poverty needs to rejoice in his, his exalted stance, right, that he is a co-heir with Christ, that he is wealthy beyond measure. And the rich man needs to rejoice in his humble state because he, like the flower of the field, is going to fade. See, when you hit your heart to things of this world, things that fade, you fade with them. What we do for Christ and his kingdom lasts. And so as we fix our eyes, when we hitch our heart to him, the new life of his spirit comes alive in us and those things last forever. Verse 9 through 11 is just a little riddle. It's just to say like, look, at the cross, we've got level ground. Everybody's the same. Verse 12, here's how he ends it. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test... He will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Uh, The crown, guys, this is good news for you. My understanding is that it's not a literal thing. Girls, that's bad news, perhaps. You would like to wear a little tiara or something. Uh, To receive the crown of something is to receive the thing itself. To receive life means that you've already found life in Christ. And so the the motivation of steadfastness is not like, I am going to do good and then get a trophy when I'm done, right? The motivation of steadfastness is Jesus loves me and my love for him compels me to live for him like really in my life. And this is such a significant thing for a guy like James to say. Here's the thing about James. There's three Jameses in the Bible, in the New Testament. Uh, And this James in the early church is is one of the four main leaders of the church. So you've got Peter and John and Paul and James. It was a really good company if you're James. All right? In Acts 15, which we looked at, they all bring this issue to the council in Jerusalem, and James is the leader in Jerusalem. He, he's the captain of this council. He's the one making the call on this thing. I mean, this guy is a big-time leader. 
You know who else he is? He's Jesus' little brother. Now, can you imagine? <laughs> Come on, man. You know, like sibling rivalry is tough enough. This is my brother? I mean, can you imagine him always getting the attention? Always doing everything right? What kind of bitterness and anger that would cause in you? And we know from looking, you know, there, there's a place in the Gospels, where a couple places actually, that mention that, that Jesus' family didn't believe that he was the Son of God. And when you get to the cross, his, you know, Mary's there, but none of the brothers are there. James is embarrassed by this death. James is skeptical about the claims of his brother to be God. On top of that, you know, when you're a little brother, you always, I mean, if anybody treats you with cruelty and, and disregard, it's your older brother, right? And so what you would expect in a letter from James in the first century would be like an expose, where I'd be like, all right, let me tell you who this Jesus really is. Like this shows up on TMZ or something, you know? That's what you would expect, but you don't get that. If anybody had the motive to say, no, let me tell you, who you he says he's God, but it's James. But you don't get that. And so on one hand, you, you have to just include, all right, the moral quality of Jesus' life was just unparalleled. Like his little brother didn't have any dirt on him. That's crazy. But that's not it. There's more to that. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul mentions that Jesus, when he raised from the dead, appeared to the disciples and a bunch of people. And then he specifies, he singles out, he appeared to James, his little brother. James isn't writing this letter because he loves the moral quality of his brother's life. And he wants to spread that good news. James is writing this letter because his brother raised from the dead and appeared to him. He's not a moralist. He's transformed. He's a bondservant of Christ. Can you imagine how that scene goes down? I mean, you're James. You've been skeptical. You've been embarrassed, ashamed, cynical. And now he rose from the dead. And he's, and he's coming to you. Like the stage here is set for the world's biggest I told you so ever, ever. And Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus comes to him and says, James, I'm not coming to condemn you, man. I came to save you. I spilled my blood for you. You're my brother. He doesn't squash him. He says, James, come lead my church. Come be a leader. Can you imagine the power of just having your brother love you and believe in you like that? In the gospel, we've been adopted into the family of God. We're brothers and sisters. And Jesus is our elder brother. And I think in the trials that we're facing right now, the thing that we need to hear the most is our elder brother say, I love you. I didn't come to condemn you. I came to save you. I didn't come to belittle and squash you. I've given you gifts so that you would lead in my church. That's the good news of the gospel in whatever trial you're facing. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.